All right. <clears throat> well, you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. We're going to continue in our study. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2 today. We just peeked at it at the end of last week, but uh, here we'll actually jump into it. Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, I hope you've really enjoyed the first chapter. Um, it's all been about Jesus, hasn't it? You know, what we believe about Jesus Christ determines where we will spend eternity. Let me say that again. What we believe about Jesus Christ will determine where you will spend eternity. The Mormons believe in Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witnesses believe in Jesus Christ. The Muslims believe in Jesus Christ. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Hebrews chapter 1 is written to give us the proper perspective on the character of Christ. It's to answer that question, who is Jesus Christ? Everyone must answer it because eternity hangs in the balance. And if you've been following along and you've looked at this opening chapter, my goodness, what have we seen about Jesus? Oh, that he created everything and that he's going to inherit everything that he created that he radiates the very glory of God and that he is the very nature of God. He sustains all things by the word of his power and he purified everything. The cleansing that you and I experience comes from him. We've seen because of those things that he is better than even the angels, the mighty beings that they are. He's better than them because he has a better name. He is the son. He's the only begotten son. We've seen that he is worshipped by those angels, and therefore he has a better honor than them, and that his nature is divine, that he is God, and being God, he is eternal, and he is unchangeable, and he is the ruler of everything. And here in chapter 2, we get to the why. Why has this author spent so much time presenting Jesus Christ to us, presenting these truths? Here is the reason, because people are in danger. People in that fellowship, amongst that group of Hebrews, amongst that group of Jews, were in danger. People in this room, likely in danger, because of what they believe about Jesus. You have to remember that this is a Jewish fellowship, that they're suffering at this time at the hands of, of their fellow countrymen, because they have left Judaism and they have uh, embraced Christ They've been ostracized from synagogues. They have, they have um, been rejected from every holy place, rejected from the community, from their friends and from their neighbors. And the price that they've had to pay has, has been too difficult to endure. And so some of them are discouraged. Some of them are really in danger of going back to Judaism and leaving Christ and going back to their old ways. But I also think there are some in that group who never really fully embraced the gospel meaning they never made a personal commitment to Christ. And what the author is doing is he's taking a break from doctrine, from his doctrinal presentation to give a gospel invitation, which tells me that whoever this author is, he's a good teacher. Because it is much more to teach scripture, to be a pastor or a preacher, than just giving out facts. I hope no one leaves just saying, well, I just learned a lot more facts. It's much more than just getting biblical facts. Paul encouraged Timothy to preach. 
And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, this is what the verse says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And look at these words, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Pastors must do their best to convince people of the truth, to rebuke those who don't follow the truth, to exhort them to follow the truth. Warning, invitation, all of those things are part of the teaching. Look at what the author of Hebrews calls his own letter in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, here, uh, sorry, bear with the word of exhortation. The word of exhortation. This entire letter is a word of exhortation to you and to me. And an exhortation demands a response. The author pauses here then in this, in this wonderful doctrinal presentation to give this invitation, to demand that response. And the reason is the unresponsive are in grave danger. It has been said that hell is truth known too late. You've heard that before? Truth known too late. And no doubt that is, that is true. Hell will be full of those who never realized the truth of the gospel. They rejected the gospel or maybe even actively opposed the gospel. But I think it will also be inhabited by people who heard the truth of the gospel, believed the truth of the gospel, yet never responded to the truth of the gospel. They never made a personal commitment to Christ. The group that is being spoken to is mentioned in verse 3. And just by way of introduction, I just want to draw your attention to that verse, chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? See, this is not directed to Christians, specifically Christians who have salvation, because, because Christians cannot neglect salvation. You have salvation we can neglect lots of things. We can neglect growth. We can neglect service. We can neglect discipleship, but you cannot neglect salvation. You have that. I don't think this is directed to those who never heard the gospel because you cannot neglect that which you've never heard. No, this is a warning to the group that I mentioned when I introduced the book of Hebrews. This is a warning to the intellectual believers, non-Christians, who understand the gospel intellectually, it makes sense in their heads, but they have not received the gospel for themselves. They have not made a personal commitment to Christ. They're like that rich young ruler, just not quite there. Everything sort of makes sense. And really, this is the first of five urgent warnings that are given in this book. There's five of them. This is the first one. And so I've titled this first warning here, Don't Drift Away. Don't drift away, and you'll see why that title in just a moment. Let's read it. We're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Starting in verse 1, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, when at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word today. And Lord, we recognize that we come to a very serious passage today. An incredible warning given here. And Lord, you being sovereign over all things and your timing and will being perfect and pleasing at all times, we must recognize that you determined that this passage would be covered today because this applies to some people in this room. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with us, that your spirit would convict hearts, guide them to truth. For those who accepted truth, guide us further into the deeper truths here, Lord, that we might um, just grow stronger in our faith, that we would leave more encouraged, more strengthened because of your truth today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just four verses here, and in these four verses, we, we are given three reasons. If you've ever asked people, or if they've ever asked you, I should say, maybe, why should I, I receive salvation? What, what would be the reasons that you would give? We had a wonderful class the other day, right? We talked about how to share our faith, and there were different methods that we looked at about hearing their story so that maybe you could identify with some things and pick up on some things and then maybe share your story so that you can share God's story. We looked at these different just sort of methods on how to share the truth of the gospel, and we really have one here packed in four verses. Three reasons to receive salvation are given to us right here, and the first is this. It is the character of Christ. It's because of who Christ is. Verse 1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. The therefore reminds us that we need to go back and look at what it's been talking about. What have we been talking about? You could say therefore is really for this reason. So for what reason? Because of what we know about Christ. Because of what we have learned about Christ in all of chapter 1, receive him. We must give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. You remember that God in time past, he spoke to the uh, fathers by the, by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, hasn't he? And so today he's speaking. And the question is, who is Christ? Who is Christ? That's the question that we all have to answer. Is it at all difficult to see the character of Christ after you read chapter one? Can I just ask you, what do you have going on in your life that's more important than responding to Christ? You see that he is the ruler of everything, creator of everything, sustainer of everything. Everything you have comes from him. What is more important? Career? Is it it a relationship of some kind? Is it um, education? What holds you back? Maybe you missed the part about Jesus outliving the entire universe like we outlive and outgrow our garments. God has spoken to humanity, and he's spoken to us by his son. And since God has spoken, we must respond. We must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Now, there are two key words in this verse, and I really want to point these out to you because they're very, very important. The first word is that word heed. It is prosecho. It is to give attention to. When you put the modifier with it, the, the verse is really saying give the more earnest heed or give very careful attention to what you've heard about Jesus. And if you've missed the first chapter and this is your first time here or if you just haven't been following, you need to go back and listen. 
What have we been talking about Jesus? What have you heard about Jesus? Because here the author has guided us to the truth about Jesus. A lot of people will try to tell you about Jesus in this world. People will knock on your doors and try to tell you about Jesus. And you need to make sure that you understand the truth about Jesus. Because there are many that are deceived about who Jesus really is. We need to know the truth. Do you remember that time in Jesus' ministry where he was becoming, well, he was very popular, but he was now becoming less popular because he was starting to teach some hard things. People followed him in droves initially because, boy, he did amazing miracles. He was very charismatic, and, boy, he was healing people. And so, yeah, they followed him. But when he began to teach difficult truths, we're told that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. John six sixty six. And so when he said that, Jesus turned to his 12. Remember, he had more disciples, but he turned to his core group. He turned to the 12, and he said, well, do you also want to go? They're all leaving me. Do you want to go as well? Do you remember what Simon Peter's answer to that was? I have it for you. It's verse, uh, chapter 6, 68. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's my question. Who are you going to go to? Where are you going to go? Does anyone else have the words of eternal life? See, they recognize that what Jesus said had eternal implications. And you look at the we's and the us's used here. Do you notice that verbiage? We must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. I don't think that detracts from the, the point that this is to a particular group of people. I opened this whole thing to say that what we believe about Jesus will determine where we will spend eternity. I lump myself in that because it is true. What I, we, believe about Jesus determines where we're going to go. And he says the same thing. We must all give very careful attention to what we just heard about Jesus because if you really heard it, if you really let it sink in and resonate, that should bring a response about, hold on, Jesus created me He sustains my very being right now. I'm held together right now because he determines that I be held together. He has done that. And one day he's going to rule everything. I'm going to bow my knee to him. Does that demand a response today? Yes, it does. That's what he's saying. And I just think about how many people sit in churches week after week and year after year, hearing all the truths of scripture and yet never responding to it. Maybe it's a husband married to a wife and just coming along faithfully with his wife every year or the the opposite. Or maybe it's older children or, or whatever it might be. God's word does demand a response. Now, there's another key word here I want to point out to you, and it's that phrase, lest we drift away, is one word in the Greek. It is parahueo, and it means several things. It means slip off, as if maybe a ring slipped off your finger. It can mean slip away, or it can mean to glide by. And what's interesting, and the reason I pointed out these two words to you is because both of those words also have nautical meanings, seafaring meanings, connotations. Heed, prosejo, can mean to moor a ship or to tie it up. And parahueo can be used of a ship that has drifted past the harbor, just glided by. And I don't think that's by accident. So I think the author has put these two words to say something like this. We must secure ourselves 
to the things that we've been taught, lest we just sort of glide past salvation. Just drifting past. Listen, I don't think the majority of the world is just rushing head forward into hell. I think a lot of people are just drifting right by salvation. And they drift right into hell. If you don't secure yourself to truth when you hear truth, you are in great peril. And that is what the author is trying to do, to stop and say, I need you to now listen, and I need you to respond to what you've just heard. You're in danger of drifting past your chance, gliding past forgiveness, sailing into judgment. It's the hearing of truth, which we must all respond to. In Proverbs chapter 1, there's just a great illustration. If you want to turn there, Proverbs chapter 1, it is speaking about wisdom. And wisdom in Proverbs is sort of personified uh, as a person, okay? And this wisdom is calling out to people for a response. And it comes to a point when, when no response is made where wisdom will not be able to help you. And in Proverbs chapter 1, beginning of verse 24, it says, Because I have called and you refused, I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. And here, note this, but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. There you have that same kind of picture, don't you? You'll be secure, securely fastened to the truth, and you'll dwell safely, not drift on by. That's where you need to be. Pastors in churches all over the planet prepare sermons and teach, and, uh, and I understand my job is just to teach the truth of Scripture. That's why we go verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and it's true. Not every time are we coming to a, a direct gospel invitation. There's a lot of doctrine and a lot of application, a lot of practical Christian living and all those things, but we come to one today. We come to one today. Listen to who Christ is. The character of Christ matters. It is the one most important question on the planet. Everyone should be asking and everyone should have an answer for. Who is Jesus? The second reason that we're given here for people to accept Christ, to receive salvation, is there is a certainty of judgment. I know that people... It's just not in fashion today to talk about hell and to talk about judgment from the pulpit. But can I just tell you, Jesus did. And he did that because he loved people. And I've got to teach about it because it's covered here. So please understand where I'm coming from here. There is a warning here, a very strong and sobering warning. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, look what it says. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast... 
and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? This this is an entire argument that is from the lesser to the greater, and that's very important to recognize. It starts with the lesser. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast. Now, first of all, what is that? That sounds kind of odd. What is the word spoken uh, through angels? Well, we've mentioned this several times along the way, but angels were believed to be mediators of the Old Testament covenant, that they were part of, of ministering and mediating that in the Old Testament. And I showed you several verses along the way, and I saved a few for today so that there would be some new ones to look at. And here's one of them in Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Now, this might seem kind of like a strange uh, verse. Why are we looking at this? Well, first of all, it's talking about thousands of thousands of chariots. That's that word myriads of myriads that we looked in Revelation that was applied to angels. But you have to wonder who are in these chariots? There's thousands and thousands of angels in chariots. And where are they? At Sinai. Where's Sinai? Well, Sinai is the uh, mountain that Moses went up to to meet with God and get the Ten Commandments. That is where the old covenant was delivered. And we're told there that God had angels with him. He was accompanied by thousands and thousands of angels. Now, there's a more clear verse here, and I'll take you to it. It's Deuteronomy 33, 2, and Moses wrote this himself. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai. There's that same mountain. He dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with 10,000s of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. These are the angels that came with God. Remember that we looked at Stephen and his, his speech to the Jews, that he said that they received the law by the direction of angels. So it is believed that angels were instrumental in bringing that law. And so the author simply says here that there was the word was spoken through angels. Now, just stay with me here. This is very important that you track this. This is the argument. If the law, that Old Testament law, think of the Ten Commandments, if that law was steadfast, that word means stable, firm, established, if that law that was so firm uh, was there, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Oh, wait, we got to pause again because we have two words there transgression and disobedience. Aren't they the same thing? They're actually not. Transgression is this word, parabasis, going over, breaching. It is breaching through something, or think of going over a wall, crossing a line. It means to step across. Transgressions are sins of commission. Those are sins that are intentional, intentionally doing something that we know to be wrong. That is a transgression. We've broken a law that is very clear. We've crossed the line. Disobedience is a different word. That means hearing is amiss. Hearing is a little off. That reflects the sin of neglect. It's a sin of omission. A sin of commission is one that's intentional. A sin of omission is doing nothing when we know we should be doing something, we've omitted doing it. One is an active sin and one is a passive sin, but both are still sin, transgressions and disobedience. 
And they both received a just reward. Did you see that? A just reward. That word reward is only used here in Hebrews, and it means a penalty or a payment. What's his point? The law of God that came by the hands and mouths of angels was so firm and steadfast that, that it never neglected to punish sin. Never. Whether it was an active sin or a passive sin. All you have to do is read the Old Testament and you get that. I'm going to show you a few because you probably heard, oh, God was just so, so ruthless and mean in the Old Testament. You don't know the half of it. Let's look at it. Genesis, Exodus, go to Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. Leviticus 24. I'm going to show you why this is so important that you understand this. Leviticus 24. God has established his law. His people know the law. They know the rules. And when rules are broken, then a payment is given. A just reward is given. And there's no, there's no negotiating that fact. You don't negotiate with God. In Leviticus 24, verses 14 to 16, this is what it says. Take outside the camp him who has cursed. That just means taking the Lord's name in vain, something like that. And then all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. He just gives us one example here that to blaspheme, to curse the name of God, meant instant death. And when someone did that, there was no negotiating. You cross the line, you deserve to be punished. Now, why? It's God's law. It's God's law. Now, that might seem, okay, well, I understand that because someone took his name in vain. Let me show you Numbers chapter 15. If you're in Leviticus, just keep going to the right. One more book. Numbers chapter 15, beginning in verse 30. Numbers 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is a native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. And then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. Now you might be reading and go, wait a minute. God killed a man for picking up sticks. Yes, because he was forbidden to do that on the Sabbath. You might say, well, this is, this, is, this is what I'm talking about. God is unjust. He's unfair. God has made his rules, and he's made them clear, and he's trying to establish something. My law is my law, and it must be obeyed. It must be obeyed. In James chapter 2, verse 10, we're told that whoever shall keep the whole law but stumble just in one point, he's guilty of breaking it all. It doesn't matter how many of the commandments you've been able to keep, but if you just stumble at one point, it's as if you broke the whole thing. And that's why we know, church, that we're sinners. <laughs> we, 
We, we stumble. I stumble at many points, let alone just one point. And listen, you think that was bad? Sometimes God punished thousands of transgressors. If you're in Numbers 20 and 15, just go ahead to Numbers chapter 25. Here's another example. Sometimes it just wasn't one or, or two. Sometimes it was thousands, literally. In Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And they went and they began to bow down to other gods. And a plague broke out, probably an angel of the Lord wiping people out. And it was stopped when the men began to respond and to punish evil and to punish wrong. Now, you think that was too severe. Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Here's here's the reality of it all. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Yep, God saved them from Egypt. He used Moses. He brought them out to the wilderness. And now hear me, every single one of those people died in the wilderness, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. They did not inherit the promised land. It was their children. God killed every single one of them. He wiped them all out. It was the children. Now, this is what I'm talking about. This sounds so severe. God is wiping out entire people. Notice that word, just reward. Just reward in our passage. Every single penalty, or sorry, every single disobedience received a just penalty. God is, is sometimes accused of being unjust. Why are these punishments so severe? Here's why. Those who were determined, and they were, to reject God's authority, to say, I don't care what you say, your law means nothing to me, and do what they want, God had to remove them for the sake of those who wanted to remain pure and holy and who wanted to live for him. His judgment on the people of Israel was severe, because they had the greatest revelation. They had the greatest light. They had God in their presence. You think of the tabernacle filling with the presence of God. You think of the the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. God was with them. They had the greatest revelation, and so the judgment was severe. Now, that is consistent, people. In Jesus, in the New Testament, just look at this. Jesus is talking about the same kind of thing, that there are degrees of judgment for those who have received the greatest revelation, the greatest light. 
He says this in Matthew chapter 11. Look at it. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What do we know about a place like Sodom? It was a filthy place. It was a horrible place. God destroyed it. Do you see what he's saying? If the mighty works that I do right now were done in that city, that city would have repented. That city would have repented long ago. Tyre and Sidon, the same thing. But these towns that he's been going through, Jesus had been doing these mighty works, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, did not respond to his mighty works. And he says, your judgment is going to be greater than the judgment of Sodom. Do you read about the judgment of Sodom? Terrible. Only Lot and his family were saved. Fire and brimstone rained down from heaven and destroyed every inhabitant of that city. And he says, these cities will get it worse. Why? Because they had greater revelation. Jesus Christ himself was in their midst. Do you see why it's important to answer the question, who is Jesus? They didn't answer it. In Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Why did the Pharisees, are they going to receive greater condemnation? They were keepers of the law. They had it all. They were supposed to teach God's people truth, and they taught them error. He said, you're going to receive a greater condemnation. There are degrees of punishment. The author understood this, and that's why we come to challenging parts of Hebrews. He understood this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 to 29, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? It's another argument there of a lesser to the greater. Listen, God is always just. His punishment is always fair. Always. Because he is God. You have to get that into your head. He is a ruler. He can make whatever rules he wants to make. And listen, his rules are always, they're not, he's not a killjoy. He's not just trying to take away your joy. He's made rules for us that if we abide by them and live by them, guess what? Our lives will go well. It will go well with us, we're told. We're to live according to his standards. Now, listen, all of that, that was the lesser argument. That's why I took so much time pointing out. That's the lesser. If God did that when people broke the law, what about those who reject Christ? That's what he's saying. This is the greater argument now, folks. Look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. I know that people love to think that they're basically good. How do you argue with this? If God did that to his own chosen people in the Old Testament, if he, if he chose to leave their dead carcasses in that desert, 
kill a man for picking up sticks who blatantly disobeyed God, how much more do you think you'll be judged because you reject the son? Listen, sin is a serious thing. Sin is a serious thing. I think about this. God took this perfect, spotless, holy sacrifice, his son. He put him on that cross. He was tortured and he died because sin is so bad. But you're, you're basically good. You can't explain that. We were at the class yesterday, and someone told a story about a man who was searching, he was seeking, he was given some scriptures and some passages to read, and he liked it. And by the time he got to the end of it, he said, I love everything that's being said, but it sounds like all of this is really for sinners. Just missed it. That's for other people. That's for people who are wicked. That's not me. No, that is you. It's me. We're the wicked ones. Jesus was on that cross because I'm wicked. That is it. If you think that you'll escape judgment because you're a good person, you need to think again. No good or not, if you neglect salvation, if you neglect to to look at who Jesus is and come to him, if you heed that, don't heed that, you will end up in hell. And I'm going to say that word and talk about it. Because Jesus does. Hell is a very, very real place. It is described in Scripture. Listen to how it's described. A place of anguish, sorrow, and torment. I don't like going to the dentist, but this sounds bad. A place of death and destruction. A place of eternal fire. A curse. A place of everlasting shame and contempt. A place of condemnation or damnation. It's called the second death, a prison, the bottomless pit, the abyss, the fiery lake of burning sulfur and utter darkness. If we neglect salvation, how are we going to escape that? You won't is the question. That's the answer. You won't. You won't. If you neglect salvation, you won't. But notice what he says about that, that that salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. It's first spoken by the Lord. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he came to preach. And it was confirmed as he pointed to the way to eternal life. It was confirmed by his disciples, those who heard him and carried on the message to others. We must recognize that what the author is doing here is to say is saying this. Listen, I'm going to give you a couple reasons to, to accept Christ right now. One is look at Christ. Look at his character. Look at who he is. The second is look at there's a certainty of judgment. And I know in times past, a lot of the Puritan preachers and those guys, it was hell, hell, hell. It was like a, an approach to scare people into the kingdom kind of a thing. Not trying to do that today. I'm, I'm in a passage that is talking about it, and I want to cover it. And hell is a very real place. And let me just add, it's scary. It scares me. Those are scary words. I'm not making these things up. I'm not trying to scare people. I'm telling you, this is real. This is scary. And I don't want anybody going there. Jesus preached that kingdom because he doesn't want anybody going there either. So respond because of the character of Christ. Respond because there is a certainty of judgment. Third, respond because of the confirmation of God. Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
according to his own will. Listen, you don't have to take my word for it. God confirmed it through what? Signs, miracles, wonders. You might be going, well, where? Where is that happening? Well, when the disciples came to people with this new message that had to be confirmed, especially when they came to Jews. And I've already talked about this. Why? Because his message was new about a new and better covenant. And they couldn't just go in there and say, hey, I know you have that, but hey, this is from God. They would say, well, this is from God. Because it was. The Old Testament covenant was from God. They could not simply go and say, hey, this is just something new. That needed confirming. And so guess what? God himself confirmed it. How did he do it? He did it with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're told. Now, we covered this in detail when we went through 1 Corinthians 12, but let me just touch a few things again on this. Notice that word signs. That word signs is say my own means that by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others and is known. It can also mean an unusual occurrence transcending the common course of nature. It's a, a supernatural occurrence. They're miracles. They're gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they should be distinguished from other gifts. I think they should be distinguished from other gifts. I'll say that again. There's lots of gifts that were given to the church, but these gifts I've called sign gifts. We went through that when we studied it. And three reasons I think it should be distinguished. One is that these signs, these wonders, were specifically given to authenticate the message of Jesus and his apostles. They had a new message, a new way. They needed confirmation. Those things were first given to Jesus. Jesus was the first one to start doing those things. In Acts chapter 2, 22, Peter mentions that. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter draws attention to that. Remember the signs. Remember the miracles he did. There was a reason that he did those things so that you would believe that his message is real and true. They were authenticating his ministry. And if you remember, the first miracle performed at the beginning of Jesus' ministry was turning water into wine. And we're told that that's the beginning of signs. That's what it says. Now, his apostles were also given the ability to perform signs as well. We read about Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14.3. It says, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Who did that? Well, the Lord did. The Lord granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul even said of himself in Romans 15, 19, "...in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around about till Iricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ." The gospel message needed confirmation, and it was indeed from God. And so those signs were called signs of an apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 12, that's the title they're given. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished uh, among you. Now, I'm not saying that those gifts uh, have ceased to exist. I'm not saying I'm a cessationist. What I'm saying is that they are distinguished gifts and they are unique gifts to be used for a particular time and a particular purpose. Another reason I think that this should be a separate classification and distinguishing mark of these gifts, these sign gifts, is of a lack of a command to do them. There are no commands in Scripture to do those things. We are commanded to do a lot of things, aren't we? To love one another, to serve one another, to edify one another, bear one another's burdens, all of those uh, things. And when it comes to even gifts, we're commanded to evangelize, we're commanded to give, we're commanded to show mercy, even if you don't have the corresponding spiritual gift. We're commanded to do those things. 
But you know what we're not commanded to do? We're never commanded to heal someone. We're never commanded to speak in, in tongues. Yet many churches seem to make that their, their, their focus on those particular gifts, which really leads to the third point, is that those gifts are really only listed in one place, and they're in 1 Corinthians 12. And I think those sign gifts are working of miracles, healings, uh, languages, and the interpretation of languages. So I think we have to admit that we're dealing with some very unique gifts, and those gifts, according to the biblical use of them, are very rare gifts. But I want you to note, notice this in 1 Corinthians 12. This is really where I want to get to the point. This is, this is where the list is given. But it says about how these gifts are obtained. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. You go back to our passage, and you really have the same thing here, don't you, in verse 4. It's according to his own will. Many churches that seem to have an improper focus on these sign gifts that will tell you that you need to seek these gifts and you need to seek a, the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that you can have these, these gifts. I heard of a pastor who received a pamphlet in the mail and it gave the steps necessary uh, to get the, the Holy Spirit. The pamphlet instructed the, uh, the person to say this phrase, say, praise the Lord and hallelujah together three times faster than normal and do it for 10 minutes. So praise the Lord and hallelujah, praise the Lord and hallelujah, praise the Lord. And you do that long enough, you'll sort of just go into the spiritual trance and you'll begin to speak some kind of a language and you'll get the Holy Spirit. It was a pamphlet on how uh, to do that. Listen, nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to say certain things to somehow get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Believers are indwelt with the Spirit. He distributes to each one individually as he wills, we're told. But here's the point. God confirmed his word, and he did it through those miraculous things. And the message is confirmed to us through the greatest miracle, the Bible. We have this amazing miracle that this, this has stayed the same. The same message has been compiled and given to us. This is truly a miracle. Many have tried to attack it because they recognize it as such. And it's always stood up against scrutiny. So we come to that final point here, and he says, listen, if you don't believe it because of this, you don't believe it because of this, believe it because God verified it. He did it through supernatural things. Don't we have people really obsessed with supernatural things today? Yeah, we do. They're looking for aliens, right? Yeah. Hey, aliens are real. I told you. We're all them. <laughs> We're aliens and strangers, right? We don't live here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And also, the angels are all over the universe. So People are obsessed with supernatural things, and they want to you know, know how to access the super, supernatural, don't they? Listen, God, God brought the supernatural into our natural world, and he verified it by doing things that cannot be explained. People have tried to explain the things that Jesus did, explain away. How did he walk on water? Well, it was probably kind of frozen at that time, and so he, sort of, he surfed on an iceberg. I don't, you know what? Crazy things. That's just blindness, blindness. So we have the ending here of the author's first warning. We'll be four more coming up in the passages ahead of us and be given three great reasons why men um, should not neglect salvation. Look at the character of Christ, he says. Can you honestly, can you honestly refuse him? Can you honestly refuse him? She just can't. Look at who Jesus is. Look at what he did for you. It's incredible. 
What about the certainty of judgment? I mean, today, it seems the world at large would do really well to open up their history books and maybe learn from the mistakes of previous civilizations. We're in danger of repeating history. (laughs) But what about the history of, of how severely God dealt with those who rejected his law? The history is there as a warning to us. How about God confirming the message of the gospel with signs and wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all those, oh, oh, those things confirming the message that we have in our hands today, the miracle that's called the Bible. But today I want to end, I want to go back to the main point, which is looking one last time at the character of Christ. Maybe, maybe all of chapter 1 is too theological, too deep for people. Sometimes it's just, like, I don't even know what you're going on about. Sometimes it just takes a simpler voice. Sometimes it just takes a, a voice that is just explaining to you in pure language how much Christ means to them. And I know many of you have heard S.M. Lockridge, and you've heard him and say that that's my king, but maybe there's many here who haven't. So I'm going to end today by playing this for you. I just want you to, I just want you to listen to this man's heart for Christ, what he thinks about Christ, and say, do I think that way about Jesus? I challenge you, listen to him right now. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. And he's impartially much. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's saint. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the people. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, 
I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. You can't even beat him, and he's not going to resign. That's right. I don't know what speaks to you more. Is it God's word and all that we saw? Is it the words of a man like Lockridge? I don't know. What will bring you to him? That's my key. God, thank you for being so good to us, for showing us who Christ is. I'm afraid I do make Christ small in my life. I'm afraid many Christians do, that we tend to live with a small Jesus in view when we know him to be so much larger. And shame on us for doing that. Because we have a world that wants to see Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your spirit to magnify Christ. That man just spoke for three minutes about Christ, and that was the shortened version. He went on and on and on and on about who Jesus was. I I see him sitting down and pouring out his thoughts. Maybe we should do the same. So God, if we have hindered anybody today from seeing Jesus, Spirit, show them Jesus. You don't need us. We will fail you. But I pray, Holy Spirit, convict people to respond. We don't have long, I believe. The time is near, and today is the day of salvation. So, Lord, work your spirit in all of us today. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.